Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome back to another Alien Minute supplemental episode. This week we're going to be talking about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. of fighting for the so-called greater good are over. This is our chance to control the truth, the concepts of right and wrong for everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Never did. You need to pick a side. Uh, Mitch, uh, this is John Engel, by the way. This is Ethan Hunt. Again, it's Ethan Hunt again wearing a Mitch Bryan mask. Uh, those of you on exactly. Patreon have heard that joke mm-hmm. already. Uh, with those of that's you who right. aren't on Patreon, go over there so you can hear fantastic jokes like that. Um, that's uh, patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Anyway, uh, right now, though, we're going to be talking about the new release, the, ver- the newest of the Mission Impossible series, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Mitch. We saw this movie together. This is the first Mission Impossible I think we went to together, right? Yeah, but you'd seen it already. I had seen it me. already. Yeah. So, so I didn't get a clear answer when I asked earlier. Or maybe my question wasn't clear at the theater. But what I wanted to know was, we saw it together in the Dolby Theater. You saw it on IMAX. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the was the whole movie in the IMAX aspect ratio? No, I don't think so. Or did it I think... did it jump in jump in and out like like, like Fallout? Like most of most of those movies do that, right? Like they t- they typically, you know, when they go to the IMAX footage, it changes aspect ratio because they're not shooting it in that aspect ratio typically. The other scenes, right? Right. So that's what you saw. You saw it jump back and forth. I mean, I guess I get lost in the movies and I don't notice sometimes, especially because those uh-huh. IMAX scenes come like there's. It's usually something very suspenseful is happening or something, you know. And I'm not looking. I don't. I don't want to focus right. on that stuff in that moment. So, but I am pretty sure I did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that is what happened. Um, where then the Dolby, the aspect ratio at the Dolby Theater would be what was the more standard aspect ratio to most of the movie, even on the IMAX. Um, so, right, which, it never jumped at Dolby. It never, it never, it stayed, it stayed scoped the whole time. Oh yeah, time. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. 
And I'll tell you, and you asked me, you know, you're like, oh, man, I kind of want to see it in IMAX. I was like, you know what? I don't give a sh- I don't give a shit about what those the bits on the top and the bottom of the screen. I just don't. It doesn't really make a difference to me. And to me, the yeah. Dolby theater experience is better than IMAX. So at the in the end, I thought it was better in um, in the Dolby when we saw it. The IMAX was the only um, they they put out this like fan screening, like just for the fans at seven o'clock on Monday night. And I I couldn't resist. I had to. I had to do it. I didn't have anything going on that night, and I was like got to do it and i knew as we discussed on our indiana jones uh episode i know that the second time seeing these kind of movies is often the best time anyway so i thought oh it'll be fine because i'll see it once and i'll see it the second time it'll be a blast i'll see more stuff that i didn't notice it'll the pacing's better sometimes to me if i see it the second time you know so um and i I think it was the same i i I enjoyed it a lot both times but i I think i did enjoy it the second time a little bit more uh okay good i just yeah now that we've got that clear, yeah. um, the good news about the scope aspect ratio in this version, this movie, uh, in the in this installment, is I swear to God, this is the Mission Impossible mo- movie that has more people in a room talking to each other mm-hmm. than any other in the franchise. And whether that's this gigantic expedition, exposition dump in the very first scene which is like all these people just basically finishing each other's sentences. and um, You mean the, the scene after the cold open? The scene after the, the cold, yeah. Maybe the second scene after the cold open, because I think it goes submarine, cold open, Ethan right. Hunt gets mission, then they go to the room. Oh, wait, no, I think we get right. the whole desert sequence. I think you're, <laughs> it's a few scenes. Oh, in, you're actually. right. You know, maybe it is. It, yeah. Maybe it's further in. But boy, is it God. quite that! And I feel like I mean, do you want to talk about that? You're right. Uh, not to go past the point of yes, he really. There's a, multiple scenes in this movie where we're having like five, six way conversations, and even people yeah. that aren't necessarily talking in the scene but are playing in the scene, as in being threatening presences or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. As you get at the midpoint uh, as well, but um, there. This movie more so than I think any of the Mission Impossible movies does, and and. They're not ever light on exposition necessarily, but this one's the heaviest on exposition maybe, right? Like as far yeah. as we got to lay out a lot of rules here. A lot You need to understand the plot and you need to understand the rules of certain aspects of the plot. And um, it was interesting because I had just been listening to Christopher McQuarrie talking about Fallout on Empire Podcast and how he was hoping to make the next one much simpler is what he was talking about, having no idea yeah. what he was doing. But he probably had no idea the nature of the whole thing, like it was going to be two movies, um, two parts of one movie, however you want to put it. And so and so it was interesting. But So I felt that the, in the Christopher McQuarrie way, though, he had fun with it in that scene. The whole everybody finishing each other's sentences was his way of breezing through it and kind of having fun with it instead of, just having people like slog through exposition, get to the end of their line. The next person has the next point. Instead, he just had them all kind of speaking one. They were almost right. like one it was voice, one voice, right? It was yeah. one voice. And and then the trick is cast all these, you know, recognizable faces from TV, mm-hmm. different shows. And, and so that you kind of go, oh, is that person going to be in the movie? Oh, is this person going to be important to the film? Oh, is this a character? And the, the answer being no. <laughs> Like, you know, just ninety percent of, of those, yeah, just one of them. Everybody else in that or room two. is is more or less expendable. It's really uh, two, so. but the one of them is left to be revealed. So most of the exposition right. happens before we get Henry Zerny 
back again mm-hmm. uh, for the first time since the first film. Um, as uh, I always, Brant, no, not Brant. That's uh, Jeremy Renner. Kendrick, got, you mean Kidrick? Ken, yeah, I couldn't think of his name. Kittredge. Jeez. <laughs> And uh, it, and it was fun to have him come back in the way he was revealed. I almost wish he wasn't in the trailer, so that could have been a real reveal, you know. But um, um, and what's her name? I don't uh, really remember a word of what is said in that scene. I really don't. Like I, I, I was watching that scene, trying to pay attention, probably more distracted by oh, there's you know, what's her name from you know Rome, and there's and Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, and there's what's his name from that British comedy show, and. There's, you know, so it's yeah. like all these, all this sensory overload, and I'm not sure how much information I took from that scene. How much? I don't even know how much information in that scene is necessary. Like I would have to go back and see the movie oh. a second time and kind of go, oh, I kind of need that. Oh yeah, do I need that? Yeah, I guess I need that. But nothing felt earned no. at all to me. Oh okay, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've. It's not earned. It's too early to be earned. I, I, I mean, know it's too early. But to you earned. need it to understand what the stakes are as the movie goes along. So I get it. Right. I get why it's there. Um, and I think you learn a lot. I mean, it tells. It, it basically lays out the entire nature of this entity that is the big bad of the movie. So without right. that, I'm not sure what you're supposed to be worried about or, uh, right. you know. Uh, you get right. you, well, you understand the go... danger of it from the cold open, but the cold open doesn't explain what it is. You're kind of like right. not sure what happened in the cold open, and then they let you know what happened in the cold open. And you have the visual um, signifier of the room full of typewriters, which is they're operating in this analog realm because the big bad villain is this you know AI digital AI that is infiltrating all of the security systems, which I think is interesting because. Like, I know people have been talking about uh, how prescient it is. And even though he'd come up with this idea a couple of years before, I heard some some critic talking about that. And I was like, dude, this was an X-Files plot back in the 90s. Like, this is this plot is so the AI that's infiltrating the ghost in the machine is such an old plot that I was. Yeah, I have to say I was a little surprised that that was what it was going to be. Really? I mean, I guess it's great. It's great in terms of like it can do anything. So great, great tool for plot complications and yeah. and inv- invading systems. Um, although I'll say to jump ahead, uh, when when Benji was feeding Ethan all the information before the big jump on his laptop, I I was really expecting that it was going to. It seems to have been able to infiltrate everybody else's laptop at any time necessary. It didn't infiltrate his. Well, they I was expecting it to. Again, they explained very clearly that they had switched to an analog system of communication. So, right. and you don't have to care. And again, yeah. I'm kind of surprised that you even cared because there's never none of these movies ever have some brilliant. No, I don't it, really it's care. Nuclear really care. codes or knock lists. Who cares? I mean, I, it's, it very clearly is telling you. It's never saying we're prescient. They never want you to think that. I think in this mm-hmm. case, it's just like we're seven and going to be eight movies in. We just have to escalate this thing to the highest level possible, which would be this right. unseeable, like un- untangible, like all powerful thing. And I think it's right. great. And it has this little eyeball thing, and it's all a little corny. But you're right; it's they, they, they never claim to be breaking ground with the like plot devices. It's never that. Yeah, that's it's, true. It, again, like, and whenever you know to jump ahead again, whenever Benji, whenever it does take over Benji's communications, and starts misleading uh, Ethan 
in uh, wherever they were, Rome. Were they in Rome? I can't even remember if they were in Rome at that point. I think point that was or in Venice. Paris, Venice. I think it was in uh, Venice. I, you, you, you said, oh, shit. I heard you say that. So, like, right at the moment where it became clear, you it seemed to work for you. So, because I, I kind of remember that that moment, you you were like, "Shit," because that's a bad complication. That's really bad news, and you kind of know that I as soon as that happens. Wow. Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah, you kind of know. You kind of know in that point too that that means this like predicted death. Somebody's going to die. Is going to have to happen now. Like, right. you know, okay, now it's going to happen. And um, we can talk more about that. That's the more apparently the most controversial part of the movie is that death. So we can get to that. Um, well, before we, we do, can, you know, we, we're kind of oh, spoiling okay. things already, but I don't think much of what we've said is really spoilery. We usually try to warn people about spoilers. Oh, right. But know. it's all spoiler. <laughs> but um, I will say, though, like to go back to the big exped- exposition dump scene. But I thought it was a blast in the crowd. Both times I saw it, uh, the resolution of the scene, everything that went down in that scene as it uh, after the exposition dump was real mm-hmm. crowd-pleasing. <laughs> like, uh, you get Kittredge and everybody, the first screening I went to, because I guess it was a fan screening, it must have been a lot of fans in there, they were all very excited to see him. And then this kind of mysterious dude that we see come in to the room that's clearly connected to Kittredge in some way, because he keeps looking at him, and they seem to have this almost like um, non-vocal communication at a couple of points uh, was creepy and weird, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I got to say, I was not ahead of that, and I was like, I don't know who this guy is at all. And from the trailer, you see this guy with the goggles on and holding mm-hmm. these two balls, and then you see this like green smoke explosion, and you're thinking, is well, this is going to be one of the henchmen in the trailer, and then it happens, and it turns out to be Ethan. Uh, Apparently, like waiting for him to uh, to reveal IMF's existence to these people is that basically what made him stop and do that? Because he's standing there, kind of listening, and then as soon as Kittredge breaks out the information about IMF, one of the guys in there is like, "Don't don't tell him about this," because Carrie Elwes says the what is he the um, in, uh, intelligence supervisor of all intelligence i don't know what he's supposed to be and he doesn't even know about imf's existence so i thought maybe that was ethan was kind of hanging back to say hey these people shouldn't know about this shit you need to shut up now and that's why he did that and then they could have their conversation but i thought that was really effective and the crowd loved it the first time i saw it especially when it was revealed it was him and then how it resolved with him becoming kittredge so he could leave everybody got a big kick out of that too which was a lot of fun so was the desert sequence um, with Ethan and um, Ilsa. Ilsa prior to that, mm-hmm. prior to this. So it went yeah. submarine, it went submarine, desert, briefing room. Is that right? Su- submarine getting the mission where they establish this first timer kid bringing him the, you know, the mission right. as if he was an uh, Uber Eats driver. And, right. and it est- so it establishes this, concept of how everyone enters imf in the first place which we've never had before um and then we get the desert sequence where we're left thinking ilsa's dead this is classic wrath of Khan shit here right like she's face down she looks dead and we cut away and then we get to the briefing room and then when ethan is telling kittredge what happened is when we find out she wasn't dead she was playing possum there and, and so is this uh, is the uber eat scene the f- is that when we have the first mind flashes back to like the mm-hmm. tragedy of Ethan's initial 
recruitment and everything. It's in that, right? Yeah, because when he's listening to the message, he's getting flashes right. of that, um, which was apparently supposed to be the cold open. And they even shot it and de-aged Cruz for the whole sequence and decided no. They pushed it really far, apparently, that they were really going to do a big DH sequence with Tom Cruise being younger, being like, like what would it be like Rain Man? Would it be like Rain Man uh, era yeah. or yeah. Uh, or like a Far and Away era uh, Tom Cruise? Uh, but they they did it. You could see a little bit of it, and it was fine because it was very shadowy. And I thought the de-aging on the other guy was pretty incredible. Like... He he really didn't look. He really looked authentically that young, and he's not like you know. Obviously, like he's he's a sixty year old man. He's the same age as Tom Cruise, um, I believe. And uh, I thought the de aging on him was pretty solid. But uh, I wonder if they I wonder if they de aged him or whether they took it from again whether I, they might. I wonder have, right. take take footage from you know he was a he was a, a very popular actor in his in his young days. That's you a know, good point. Because it was so, it's. It's too. It's almost too good. To, you're, you're making me think that probably is what it is. I haven't heard anybody say that, but it was yeah. so good that it makes me wonder if they didn't pull some footage from somewhere. Yeah, like like good poor call. cow in in uh, right in the limey, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe they found a stamp. They found yeah, maybe they found one scene where he shoots somebody and they wrote around. That's a cr- classic Christopher McQuarrie is writing around something else as opposed to finding something for what he wrote initially. You know, I think- so. I think that's what's so interesting for me is is thinking about the movie. And I don't know whether I have this same feeling about Fallout or not, but keeping all the blocks straight, like what happened in what order in this movie is particularly interesting to me because I, what little I've heard about how it kind of gets shifted around and kind of built as they go along and they didn't know if this is going to be at the beginning or this is going to be at the end and where are we going mm-hmm. to put the big stunt you know like i think you told me that in mission impossible the, the one he hangs on the plane that that, mm-hmm. that was going to be later in the movie but then yeah. they moved it to the front or something it might so, have been the end of the movie they didn't know they shot it yeah. first and they didn't know where it was yeah. going to go exactly and when they realized you know they were like well we should just get it out of the way but it's a hell of a cold opening so you know, it's, it is. It's and great that they could serve as that. And, you know, I mean, I thought that's what was going to happen in this one, too. I was actually rather surprised that the big cliff jump that we've seen a thousand times, not only seen it in the trailer, but seen how it's done. I've seen that featurette about how it's done like four times in the mm-hmm. theater. I was surprised that they actually saved that for a big moment because it almost felt like to tread on, you know, like I've seen it too many times for it to be effective. And to be honest, it might not have been as effective. Uh, we can get mm-hmm. into that when we get further along in the movie. But, um, yeah, it is funny how – I think it's great in a lot of ways that they write that way because it makes things um, – it can kind of actually create an organic uh, feel to things where they wouldn't be if you're forcing your writing to be adhered to as opposed to the other way around. Like changing Fallout. The big one is the Fallout's the big Fallout helicopter chase stunt. They had to completely change the plot or the location of a lot of the plot because they couldn't shoot that stunt in most countries. They had to find the country that would let them do it, which was New Zealand. And then they had to find a country in Europe that looked like New Zealand. And then they changed the plot in order to adhere to that, which Uh um, you don't notice when you're watching the movie. I mean, so I'd say if you're going to make a big action spectacle, stunt spectacular kind of movie, that's what should be the priority. Like 
Like, certainly not your plot. That's like, the plot in these movies is like four, four rungs down the ladder of priority to me. I don't give a shit about them, the plot very much in these movies, personally. But it may least. be that, that the surprises come, and I know when you're writing and you're able to surprise yourself, that's always a pretty good... Yep. Most of the time, if you can surprise yourself, you're probably going to surprise the audience. And so maybe that's another thing that allows for some of the, as you said, organic or surprising things to happen because they're building it. They're going to the location and saying, oh, let's just, let's do this or they're oh, we need mm-hmm. to have this happen first. So how what's the quickest way to do that? Or what if we do this? So I think that rem- remains one of the more um, intriguing things about this franchise. And I always feel like there's enough surprises in every single one of them to, mm-hmm. you know, never make me feel, yeah, they're, they're outrageous. Um, it's not, you know, it's not mission simplicity. So it's, you know, it's, it's supposed to be crazy, but there's always enough surprises in them that I always feel pretty satisfied. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and like you're saying, like it, it's, it's always going to be crazy. It's always going to, uh, stress for a similitude to a certain extent, which I, I, I which I'm fine. It, it pushes the envelope always, but I think that's part of what makes it work. Um, like following, continuing to follow that trope of to get the mission to the beginning in some silly way, and it burns for some reason, which was a classic '60s television. But nowadays, it's a really archaic thing when you think about it. But that's exactly why it works so well at the beginning of every one of these, where it's. Like, why would he yeah. get, why in the hell would he get a book with a tape recorder in it? Why would he get, you know, an Uber driver bring it? Like, what, that doesn't make any sense when you think about it. And then it burns for no reason. There's really not any, like, sure, uh, nobody else can get to it, I guess. But all of this could be explained away easily, especially in our modern age, uh, as being stupid. But that's, every time, it's a tone-setting thing. It's telling you, yeah. this is how silly these are. Don't expect it to be grounded and real. Like, in a way where the Bourne movies are also fairly extravagant in a lot of ways, they are more grounded than these movies. I feel like there's usually trying to keep a foot on the ground in those movies where these movies are not. They, they just kind of, they're ready to go into space. They're literally going to go into space, I think, in the next movie. They're like, Mission Impossible has no limits uh, where other movies kind of give themselves limits, which is fine too. But anyway, That said, I, think- I also think that, that there's a good instinct probably again it's Macquarie and Cruz like they have a good sense of when things have to be stated or mm-hmm. overstated or underlined and when things can be not mentioned at all and I think in this movie you know the gimmick with um, Vanessa Kirby's the white widow's eyes blue eyes the real girl brown eyes the imposter and nobody ever says anything about eye color I don't believe I don't Mm -hmm. believe there's one line of dialogue that addresses it and so it creates and I don't even think it even nothing even hangs on it nobody nobody looks and goes oh your eyes are different and something turns so the audience is thinking about it all the way through and the filmmakers are making darn sure that you spot it and you're conscious of it and it helps you keep the two women straight who's the fake one and who's the real one Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I just think that's one of the things Maybe just because I like looking at Vanessa Kirby, but I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about about you know this one and and what it lets the audience do as far as you know working on the movie. I think they they also do an incredible job of the actors, but I think they ca- they cast people that know how. I wonder if they do any kind of testing 
with people to see how good they are at mimicking people. Because I really thought that, uh, we talked about this with Philip Seymour Hoppin when we talked about the third Mission Impossible. Well, he is one of the great actors that we've known. And he does that Tom Cruise stuff when he's when Cruise is wearing the Philip Seymour Hoffman mask or, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman is acting like he's Ethan Hunt wearing the mask. And how incredible the physicality of it and all these things he's doing. Like when he's telling the guy, leave me alone just a minute. Like and he's doing it real cruisy, you know. Like his, mm-hmm. And I thought Kirby did a great job. Now, I don't – I'm not – I know Haley Atwell somewhat. I She doesn't have as distinct physicality as Tom Cruise. Nevertheless, the characterization of this – Grace character that Haley Atwell plays is present when Vanessa Kirby is playing her, and uh, and especially the fear of what she's doing for the first time, you know. And you get that she she's really good at being a uh, still being Vanessa Kirby and still kind of playing the White Widow character, but having that dis that unease within her that it, mm-hmm. it's really great. It's just great performance, and that's some of the better. You know what? I bet you that's some of the most difficult act, screen acting you can do. To be perfectly honest with you, like we'll excuse it, we'll dismiss it when because we're watching these big action adventure movies but that stuff's not easy and it's not easy to convey on camera you know and maybe some of it's in the cut but um i thought she did a fantastic job of that and they do a good job of that every time it seems like every time somebody's wearing a mask they're doing a pretty good job of being the other person you know not being themselves inside the other person or however you want to put it it's confusing as it's supposed to be but um yeah so yeah, um, where were we? We were kind of. I don't. That we don't could probably go, go on our list single... of things you expect in every in every Mission Impossible movie. You expect good mask representation work. You know what I mean? Yes. You expect it's it's part of the part of the game. Well, as we've been talking about over on Patreon, this idea of the usage of the mask, how much, how little, like mm-hmm. what's too much. This one they go they go all out. Like there's a lot of mask in this one. And it's great. There, it still doesn't feel overused. It still works. It's not, it's not tropey in a tired way. It's still yeah. like they're still able to say, "Hey, we can pull this bag of tricks, this out of our bag of tricks," and it's still going to work on you. You know, they did use. I was I was surprised that they once again used the mask machine's broken. Ethan, you're going to have yeah. to go. It. I mean, is that the third time that's happened? Was it infiltrated by the the AI this time? See, I wish they. I kind of wish they would have hung a lantern on it if that were the that's case. That's kind of what I thought had happened at the AI. Well, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that, but they should have. If that's the case, I would have liked them to hang a lantern yeah. on it for, just so I didn't feel like they were just using that shit again. Mm-hmm. Like, because because it breaks in, um, it breaks in. Ghost Protocol. And you got to go in. We got to hope he doesn't recognize me. Does that happen? Happens again in Fallout. This time, there's no. We got to hope they don't recognize me. I'm just gonna have to get at on. At least this train somebody a breaks way. it in, in Fallout. Somebody breaks it in Ghost Protocol. It, go- it, it doesn't. It just doesn't work, right? It just. It just. It never works. So it kind of. It kind of works yeah. better. It, great there because it's. It, they're on their own, so they're using some equipment that they got from somewhere. So you could understand <laughs> that it's probably not the newest model or whatever. Right. In in. The best is, though, in Fallout because uh, Henry Cavill uses it to bash that guy's face in. And you're like, right. dude, you're you're not you're IMF. You don't machine. realize how fragile these things are. It all worked for yeah. character and plot. In this case, it was kind of like we just need to have this. It kind of feels like we need to have this stunt. We need to get him on the train in a weird way. So it's fine. I'm not saying it's bad. I was just surprised that they did it a third time. I might even be forgetting another time where this has happened. But uh, 
It does seem yeah. the breaking the machine, the machine didn't work. Luckily, they got that first mask, or the whole movie would have come to a screeching halt. Yeah. But um, well, do you want to talk about the um, submarine sequence since this is a Paramount picture, and <laughs> we love Paramount for, for it's for a Hunt silent for October and for and for, wasn't Paramount also um, Crimson Tide? Oh, and K nineteen. And K-19. K-19, right? the so Widowmaker, Chris the Tide, and um, yeah. Hunt for October. Probably something else we're not thinking of. But, um, yeah. man, U-571 might have been a Paramount. It might have been. Maybe. I think it was. This dealer produced it, I think, didn't he? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. That's I'm the one with John Bon Jovi, right? Yes. And I'm usually pretty good at, as I've yeah, demonstrated. It could have been. It could have been. Paramount <laughs> distributed it, and De Laurentiis produced it. It's very possible. It's very possible. I, I might be wrong. I'm usually pretty good. I demonstrated this on um, on the ABCDTOS that I'm actually pretty good at just remembering what studio makes stuff out of the, <laughs> off the top yeah. of my head. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I'm pretty um, good too. The, yeah. Did you so like I know just is just like I'm going to be nerdy or split hairs or two or three things in this movie. Oh yeah. And sure. so I thought that after going to all the business of you know, kind of doing the old sort of starts in Russian and then it and then it does a kind of transition and then they're not speaking Russian anymore. They're speaking English. Then why do they have to have Russian accents? <laughs> oh, because they're just, Russian. You don't you so still want people. Dopey. But it's but you know what? There would be people that would be like, wait, are they Russian or not? I swear. Right. You just need to You just it's better to be dopey than have people be anybody be confused for these kind of movies. You're, these are the kind of right. movies where. Nobody sitting in the theater should be any more confused than they have to be. Only as confused, the ideal is, they're only as confused as you need them to be to surprise right. them at some point, right? right. So right. in this case, it's a clear, it's clear they're not even um, mincing words or however you want to put it about it being, this is, this is the Red October, kind of. Like they have mm -hmm. the thing that switches over. So like you said, it's a silent running submarine that's Russian. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like they're clearly going, hey, look, it's Hunt for October for five minutes at the beginning of the movie. And I think it's great. Like, great. Mm -hmm. It's fun. Um, and, you know, I'm just a sucker for submarines. And guess what we're going to get? More. Way more. Like, right? Uh, yeah, the way this movie right. ends, we're going to have have to – they're going to out-thunderball Thunderball by 100 probably. I'm guessing that we're going to have gigantic underwater sequences in the next movie. They have to, Right. And uh, they had, and that's one Except thing they have not in done yet. Ice cold water, so I don't think There's, it's like I'm not sure they're how gonna, you're going to get. IMF armies. is going to have some kind of dude. I just watched the trailer. I just saw the trailer for the Meg Two. As a matter of fact, we saw the trailer for the Meg Two oh, before. God. Yeah, and they're like walking around the Marianas Trench. I mean, you yeah. can't. People can't get out of something, and like barely could go down there at all. Um, yeah, it's okay. We'll figure. They'll figure out some way to have like uh, Simon Pegg will explain very quickly and very Britishly. How these like suits work that they're going to be like right. spelunking. The okay. funniest thing I, I will say that Archer did uh, his big idea after when we were driving home from the theater was that after that little yellow car in this movie, <laughs> he like this really cracked him up. He's like, uh, he's like, I think Ethan's going to have a little yellow submarine go down, and he just like <laughs> it made him it made him laugh. He made his own joke made him laugh really hard. That's funny, but uh, I don't think that's actually going to happen. But but they say that they're going to space. So is the so let's let's just speculate for one second. Supposedly, there's a big stunt in space, which I'm guessing mm -hmm. the only stunt I could think of that could happen in space is a free fall, just like that guy did some years ago. Remember when that guy did that 
mm-hmm. above the orbit freefall thing. Mm-hmm. Is Cruise going to do that? I mean, what else can you do idea. up there? That's a stunt, you know. Anyway, but the, but my guess is they're going to have to have to take over some kind of a satellite, right? To have some or kind they of have control. A, they could have a zero G fight or something, and they actually go film it in. Yeah, but know, that's been done before. Blue Origin. Well, not actually in space. They've done vomit comets, but I don't think anybody's ever. We've there's only we've only got two space tours Mitch, com- companies, you're, right? You're forgetting though what we just talked. What we were talking about the last time we talked about Mission Impossible is that Cruz does not do the stunts. He doesn't cheat. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything if you're just up there. Oh, kind of. Tom Cruise is going to have to be in space, or like you're going to have to see him out there. Or it's, he wouldn't do it. If there's any way you could explain that he didn't do it, that it's all just a cheat, he won't do it. Mm. That's what supposedly their rule about these big stunts is. So I'm thinking it's, he's going to be have to be outside of something. And it won't be space-space. It'll just be as high as you can get, you know. Like right. about as high as Maverick is in the beginning of Top Gun Maverick, you know. Um, right. I don't know. But my guess is they're going to have to go up and – manually take over a satellite or something, right? So they can have their own way of communicating. I don't know how that works with line of sight. You'd have to have multiple satellites. Anyway, we're getting off on um, speculation about the next movie. But um, Sign me up. Where were we, though, (laughs) with this Well, no, so we're talking about submarine, and we've talked about the... Oh, yeah, the submarine's great. I mean, so, you know, we can talk about the desert set piece uh, if you want. I don't... I was actually fairly confused and unexcited by the whole thing i thought that that at the end of the day the sand and everything else about it was just sort of like eh. it was it I, was it left me i believe cool. that was an afterthought as well um if i understand mm-hmm. correctly they went to where were they not they weren't in dubai again they were where's that airport where was the airport or the uae Morocco? i think i thought the airport was at, U- Maybe. It was at the united Arab. Arab and from what i understand is they they use that airport to shoot in and shoot on top of. And mm-hmm. while they were there, they wrote a desert sequence because <laughs> they're okay. like, here, we're here. There's desert. I thought it was fine. Um, I had no problem with it. It's, but you're right. It's not, it wasn't anything spectacular or super memorable. Uh, I the do airport want to talk sequence about, was better than the, sand, it was better. Than the sand sequence. I will say that the first time I saw the movie, the airport sequence felt a little draggy to me. Mm-hmm. And then the second time, I thought it clicked much better. It's really long. Yeah. And there's a lot of pieces to it, you know. Yeah. Um, but it works, and it's and it and it sets up this interesting. It's kind of like it. It kind of moves us into the new movie in a way, because in to me, it feels like part of a movie, part of an older Mission Possible movie, that then when he sees the specter of the um gabriel character and then he disappears that's where the movie clicks over to me mm-hmm. and that's where it becomes this uh, oh there's this specter this thing that can control what you see and hear mm-hmm. and that's the first time you get it and when they show what happened and how that ai is like shrouding him from cameras and things like that that's when the stakes really go up right like we're oh we're in a strange new world here we're not just trying to steal keys from a guy which is great though all that's fantastic, mm-hmm. and I do love. It's I really say, good, I, and she's great. Yeah, she's like she's fan- she's she's, great. she's a perfect kind of Hitchcock, you know, sociopathic criminal foil that does not have any ethics whatsoever, and mm-hmm. it makes her a really fitting adversary for Ethan. Yeah, 
she's yeah she's they they have done just such a fantastic job casting uh the female leads in all these movies and um and giving them stuff to do so unlike your bond girl quote unquote they're not just a pretty face um and some bond girls aren't just a pretty face either but they're always these are always meaty characters and and they keep adding them you know like you got three of them right in this one and Mm -hmm. it's and they're all great they all have plenty to do and they're all interesting and they're all great actors and but i love the um so now we we can add to ethan hunt's uh toolbox close-up magic right like apparently he's a magician which is awesome of course course. i have no doubt believing that (laughs) no no there's no limit i'm telling you there's no limit um but that whole situation where he pulls her in and she finds out like they're both there he basically becomes a street grifter for a second just to gain her respect and and for her to understand that he he has the capability to one-up her if he needs to um all of that's great but all of that is a bit um of a red herring kind of in a way because this key i mean the key so we could talk about this the cruciform key which is funny too because it's very it feels like they're tapping into multiple paramount properties because this whole cruciform key thing makes me think immediately of the last crusade indian jones and last crusade the the brotherhood of the cruciform sword and all that stuff and just having this Mm -hmm. kind of a MacGuffin. um but but this whole bit about stealing the key is very red herring right like it, it really i mean i know the key is integral to the plot throughout but what's really important is this gabriel character and what the ai the entity can do to you um and that's what makes the the airport sequence really sing is the is that switch that happens at the end as i said we're also introduced to shay um shay wiggum and um I can't remember the other actor's name. I wasn't familiar with him before, but his sidekick uh, or partner, however you want to put it, um, who the actor's name is, Greg T- Greg Tarzan Davis. Um, and that's an interesting addition. Now, what do you think about adding these guys? So we got these agents on Ethan's trail, and that's all they care about is Ethan. They're not part of the bigger plot at all, like, or at least they right. don't know they are, right? It's just find Ethan Hunt, right? So that's yeah. an interesting, like, there's more layers to the plot here and more layers to the pursuit, or however yeah. you want to put it. And what do you think of those guys? What do you, I mean, what do you it's, think? It's, it's the midnight run trick, right? Where you've got right. the bounty hunters, the FBI, the mob, um, mm-hmm. and probably police, too, on some level, um, mm-hmm. showing up. But, yeah, I, I, I guess it gave an extra... It gave an extra ball to throw up in the air, which seems to be that this is, the, as we said earlier, this is the big juggling act of characters, the biggest of all of the Mission Impossible movies. So you've actually got a, a second group that's coming after Ethan who are working for the CIA, right? They are CIA. They're working for Kittredge, who is the CIA director, right? So yes, I guess they are CIA. Right, because I believe they they say that Kittredge is the s- director of the CIA in this movie, which is funny. Um, oh, I thought Carrie always was the director of the CIA. No, he's like the bigger. He's like the director of all the intelligence agencies. Oh, or okay, the DN, what, like director of national intelligence, except for IMF, DNI. which he was unaware of. Which right. which it's always a sweet thing about I IMF is so outside of the of the normal circles that even the director of all intelligence doesn't know it exists, which is great. Right. And maybe Kittredge only knows it exists because he's the CIA director. But then wasn't, um, what I'm, I'm curious about is, uh, um, 
what happened to the last CIA director. I even saw her picture on the wall. Yeah, it was on the wall. At one point. Couldn't, so what is she now? Like get her. Se- Secretary of... Yeah. Well, um, She's and, moved and up, again, you know. She's working for the White House now. Well, McCory even talked about, again, going back to that follow-up conversation I heard, was that she was going to be the new next you know, thing. So I think he wanted to use her. I wonder... I, I kind of wonder if she's not going to still pop up in the next one. But um, it was interesting. We did see her picture, but they kind of replaced her with Kittredge. So who knows? Maybe that was the way I couldn't get her. So it's like, hey, you know, the next best thing is to bring somebody back. But there is, I mean, I do want to get into this because to me, this is a big talking point. There does seem to be a symmetry that's being built here uh, for the whole series in that there are multiple points in this movie where McCory as director and even like the set design and so on are talking to the first movie. And I think there's a lot of De Palma-esque camera work and framing, lots of the canted angles, the Dutch angles, um, Mm -hmm. where I've never, I I don't remember seeing any of those in any of these movies since the first one. Um, I feel, and definitely the train fight that get, once they get into the tunnel towards the end and there, and you have that thread of the little red lights hanging down, Mm -hmm. which is what took John Voight out in the Mm -hmm. first one. As soon as I saw that, I go, man, this movie's really talking to the first movie. You got Kittredge back. I really do feel like there's this attempt. And I think with the, here's how you get into the IMF thing that we've never talked about, it's kind of bringing us full circle to something. Um, so I'm wondering what the next movie's going to be like. Um, but I do, I did feel a lot of De Palma-esque elements in this one. So that's part of having Kittredge back. I wonder if when they got, they decided to bring Kittredge back, if that wasn't you know, this kind of lends itself to this idea of bringing us full circle. I don't know. That's just speculation. Was there a reference to Max in this? Somebody was, I was talking to somebody and they were saying that they thought that um, Vanessa Kirby as a child who knew Kittredge, right? Uh When she was a little girl. Is her mother Max? Oh. Vanessa Redgrave? Wow. Maybe, because remember the way it, somebody Max said is, they said somebody said something about Max, and I was like, I didn't hear that. Maybe I don't was, think they say. I don't think he says that. But what he says is, I'm the one that allowed your mother to continue to have this empire that you guys, and now it just seems obvious. I didn't even think about it, but that's how it ends. Is Kittredge catches her, and she kind of grins mischievously. And you could definitely believe that she could make a deal with him after Mission Impossible 1. That she could have made a mm-hmm. deal with Kittredge and gave him information for the rest of her life in mm-hmm. exchange for keeping her lifestyle, which she clearly loves. <laughs> which <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave's performance clearly indicates Max loves her lifestyle. She right. wants to keep it at all costs. Totally believable. And then the timing would be perfect for Vanessa Kirby to be her daughter. And this other guy to be her son, even if that the other guy might be somebody else's son and just a half brother right. or something. I don't know. Right. But um, man, I don't think they say it. I've seen it twice and I did not hear that word. But now that it's, I, it, I think it might be suggested. Yeah, I didn't think about it, but that's great. I mean, that's fantastic if you ask could me. Be. Yeah. Huh, huh, I like it. And well, that's maybe just another whole... element that could be the, the, the symmetrical thing that's happening. Well, and the Could tip be. of the hat to De Palma may also be part of this kind of ethos that Macquarie and Cruz at least said they had 
three movies ago, which is they were going to try to bring a different directorial style to each mm-hmm. movie, even if McQuarrie was directing all of them. And so they would make different choices for each film. So maybe part of the choice set for this one was De Palma, you know, go back to some of that kind of style. Well, and on top of that, they, you know, not specific to De Palma, but they they heightened the hijinks a little bit in this one, right? Where there's always been some joking around and some funny bits, and this one went further. Like, don't you think? Certainly, the yellow car, the yellow car, and that entire. It's very for your eyes only. It's it's almost like. Tati, there's there's like bit. bits of Tati in it. To have her driving it, and she and it's so so it's such so souped up. This little yellow, what is a little yellow Fiat, it's a, right? It's a Fiat, yeah. Um, it's so souped up that at one point she's driving it, but she can't control it at all, and it's spinning in circles. And the movie stops to watch her spin around in a circle, and even the hinch person, um, Paris, who we haven't talked about yet, which who I really want to talk about. Uh, I always forget her name. Palm Clementif uh, plays. She's Mantis from Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, as this, like, the new level of hench person. And mm-hmm. even she stops to watch the car go in circles like, what the fuck is going on here? And it's this level of hijinks that is very, like, Roger Moore, John Glenn, you know, like, right. Bond. And yeah. um, they're, they're, so obviously they've made this point to say, we're doing something different. We're escalating something. We're heightening something. Even some people might not like it. It's a little bit, maybe it's too goofy for some people. I don't know. I thought it was fun. And I especially thought, so that entire chase with the Fiat was a blast to me. I, everything from the from her stealing the cop car and not knowing how to drive very well and running over everything to then having the Paris character just loving running over everything in that Big mm-hmm. Hummer, you know. Yeah, it's um, great. So chasing the big truck, chasing the little car, and all that stuff—it was fantastic. But it's so it's so absurd, you know. Like so much of it is so absurd, especially the way they escape going down, down the some Spanish sort of steps. a. Well, going down the Spanish steps is crazy. Yeah. But going down that little tunnel—is that something that even exists? Like the yeah. tunnel that takes you all the way down to the subway? Maybe it does. I don't know. I have no um, idea. But it doesn't matter. It's crazy. But it's a it's a really great chase and they and you know they again you're seven movies in you've got to have a car chase in every one of them right Isn't that I mean, crazy it's kind of they wind up in obligation. the subway the same the same way that indy winds up in the subway they wind up on a train the same way as indy winds up on a train there's there's lots of it's interesting how they've just well they you know not in the exact same way but yes not in the same they, way at all no i'm just saying they they both had yeah yeah it is weird how close there, there's other things about these movies that are kind of close and they came out so close together, but yes, there's a top of the train fight. There's running through the train business happening. Mm-hmm. There's de-aging or almost de-aging. Uh, there's um, de-aging. Yeah. Subways. I will say that the least, my least favorite, most, the most disappointing thing for me in the whole movie was that sword fight. Um, mm. And considering what happens in it and how important that that moment that fight should be it was so lame it's like she's got this pointy sword and she never uses the point you know she's slashing Mm. with it and it's like who choreographed this fight because yeah she can flip over him and everything but it's like is what happened i guess bill hobbs and, and and bob anderson are dead and now there's no great sword fighters anymore in hollywood because you would have thought that they could have really done something 
interesting with it. And it was, it was disappointing for me. It's the most, I believe, like I said, this is the most controversial point of the movie. Not only because Ilsa's killed, but I think because the sequence doesn't really pop. Yeah. And therefore her death feels less than because of that. Like if you're going to kill a character, you kind of have to make sure the whole thing it's built on something that's the great. The fight that Ethan and the fight is that Ethan's having is fantastic. Contrapuntally to it is better and even the fight she has at the getting out of the party um when she's there, whoever's kicking ass there, I think I think it's still I think it's her too. I think she fights at the party too. Um and that's pretty good, but boy the yeah, you get to the See, sword fight and it's I'll tell you massive. man I would take them and flip them. So what I would have done was have it seem as though she's going to run into Gabriel and Gabriel's going to be the one that kills her. But I would have flipped it and had her get trapped in that alley with those two and fight just as hard to get out and have the whole thing happen exactly the same way, only to have her lose. That, that Hey, that would have felt a little bit more believable. I feel like Elsa somebody who needs a severe disadvantage to get beaten. In mm-hmm. the first place, I don't believe yeah. that Gabriel guy can beat her. I don't. Right. I did not I believe agree. it. So I, I thought that was either. a problem. And um, and he's just got a knife too. We, like she's got a fucking sword. And yeah, he's this got a, He's got a little knife, and he's. Uh, of course, anyway. we do see yeah. him get over on Paris too. Like he gets her too. So apparently, he's pretty good. But um, the only thing that we really get out of the scene with Ethan. Uh, which he escapes is that he doesn't kill Paris, right? And right. and that comes back later. Which is I thought that was great. worth saving? I, I so there could be another way to do that if you need that. But I would have flipped them around. I would have had Ethan be fighting Gabriel, and it looks like ah, I'm going to get you. And then Gabriel's like, in classic villain, almost comic book villain, like Spider Man villain fashion. Well, I'm actually doing this here, so that person's over there you know it's this is happening to the person you care about and it's like i made the wrong choice you know ethan made the wrong choice and that's mm-hmm. what ends up you know that would wait on him a little bit more to given it a, i don't know there's a lot of ways where that could have worked better but well her still in that alley have... would have been better i think you're if right yeah paris had killed ilsa and ethan had the chance to kill her out of revenge and wouldn't take the revenge just because he's ethan and then that comes back to help him out at the end that would be okay too yeah, yeah, that could have worked well. you know, sword schmord. I just thought that, yeah. that, was, that was kind of a disappointing moment. It, 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 um, if you're going to kill a character that's that important, it just felt like it wasn't quite as well thought through as everything else. And I, I have a friend who, he was also there for the, not the same screening I was at, but he saw it that early screening. So we had both just seen it the one time, and he was like, I don't know. It feels like a trick. It feels like she's got to still be alive or something. I was like, huh, I don't know. And then watching it the second time, I realized, no, she's, they make it clear. Like, it's a rule of thumb. Eyes open, dead. You can't trick anybody. Like, if you, if somebody's supposed to be dead and you see their eyes open, they're dead, typically. That's typically the tell. Wherein you can fake it if somebody closes their eyes and cocks their head over, or if they're face down like Ilsa is earlier in the movie, mm-hmm. some way. But when you show the eyes fixed and glassy, that's usually film language for, nope, this is really dead. Like, there's no coming back from this. You know, I don't know. Um, I would, it would be very difficult. I mean, especially considering they they also continue to talk about her being dead 
um, for no other reason. Like, they couldn't be tricking anybody when they have this conversation about her dying later. There's no reason mm-hmm. to be faking it. So, it is sad because she was really one of my favorite characters. I love Rebecca Ferguson. I loved Ilsa as a character. I love that they did finally settle down and give us a um, a recurring female character. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll tell you, it bummed me out. Like, when Ethan walks up to her, and I'm just like, damn, is this movie just telling us that he's not allowed to have that kind of happiness you know is that is that what the i mean is that what what this is about because it feels a little bit bleak for mission impossible like i feel like this thing should end with him being able to be happy maybe or dead right it's gonna be one or the other which a heroic death is is just as good um honestly as far as how in movies it is but um i was just like so he has like Everybody he ever cares about gets killed, like or he can't be married because it's too dangerous or whatever it may be. It's like, is that what we're doing? Because I feel like that's another thing, and I'm not sure I want that. But we'll see what they do in the next movie. I mean, what's he gonna be with Grace? I think you can't almost can't do it anymore. It's like we've they've dried up the well of romantic interest for for Ethan Hunt, and they barely were getting there with her. They were just kind of pecking on the surface of him having a romantic relationship with her. They weren't there yet. So it's like, maybe I don't the know, White a little Widow frustrating. Maybe become a good guy in the next one. Uh, maybe. maybe. But that's... Maybe they'll... I don't know. Who knows? If they try to make a real romance out of that, that that's going to be a tough one because it's very, very surfacey flirtation, not right. any kind of actual right. connection. So I right. don't know. Anyway, but yeah, sword fight definitely. I would agree. Least favorite part of the movie as well. And I guess she, Rebecca Ferguson, did say that was the last thing she shot, and it was quite a, quite a ways after even principal photography. So that might have been a bit of an afterthought scene. Yeah, as maybe well. So. Or or yeah. was that the last thing she? Th- oh, maybe she said the last thing she shot was the fight with the guy to steal the key, and that we see flashes of at the beginning of the movie. I can't remember. But anyway. Um, well, moving on, uh, so now, so basically what we end up with is Grace, Haley Otwell's character, is, she has to make the choice now, this choice that they talked about, um, which is, you know, we find out, I guess, I don't believe they've ever suggested this earlier, that all of the IMF members were once criminals of some kind, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Is that suggested on the show? I don't, I don't know about the show, but I, but certainly in the series, that's the first time that this has been part of that, you know, God forbid we use the word mythology of the characters. Well, but, I like it. Because I think it adds yeah, something I like it too. Yeah. Um, at a point where you kind of need to start adding a little bit more um, yep, to the series. And so, and it makes sense in a lot of ways. These people are like, you know, Benji was probably robbing, doing like uh, hacking banks and robbing them. Or I don't know what, same thing with uh, Luther and, um, and now we see it in action. We see a person getting recruited into IMF, which is well. Cool. Benny, ben, Benji, Benny, Benji was working for CIA. He wasn't part of IMF, and then he got into he trouble was. with them. No, when he, he was, was in the third one. He's at the IMF. That's where you first meet him. He's just a guy working at a computer, and they go, "Hey, Benji, you need to do some stuff for us." So, him do you and... think he's been given the choice? Yes, he says so. Okay, he says I used to be this way too. Okay, okay. So all of them have been. Some kind of a criminal that was then given the choice to join IMF instead. Right. And so that's a new wrinkle to this whole thing. And we get to see it in action with Haley Atwell's character. And so we get to see it. It's a tough choice, but you kind of got to make it, right? But that's, 
uh, they did a great job. And and what did they do, Mitch? We talked about it again when we were talking. About it. They pulled the old. Here's the action. Here's the the big sequence. No, it's not. <laughs> they did it again, right? Where it's like they show her being the White Widow and Ethan being the brother. What's his name? V- Vil- Vilmo or something like that. Um, and you see them kind of getting the key and then you see him escape the top of the train and take off the mask and everything. And then she's like, whoa, 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 <laughs> what? Like, right. And we were like talking about it last time. Like, are they going to do that again? Because I think that's the third time they've done that, right? Yeah. And they did. They did it again. <laughs> it works, though, because what it does is it gets us in her head. Uh-huh. This is her. This is her hearing the plan given to her. And when she realizes what the end of the plan is, she's like, fuck that. You're just going to yeah, leave right. me on the train? You know? Right. So it works. It, it, it does give us something new. Even though it's using the same trick, it gives us something new, which is getting us into the head of this new character who we barely know. And yeah. then establishing, it taps us into her fear, which then gives us the stakes and for all the suspense that's to come when they do get on the train and she's the, and she's alone um, doing this. Uh, but then we get, like we talked about the mask is broke. So Ethan's going to have to come up with a new way, which gives us an excuse, a new way to get on the train, which gives us the excuse to do the parachuting off of the clip, even though that's not what's supposed to happen. He was just supposed to casually jump on it. Right. But because Gabriel, took over the train and very brutally, but they really have made that. He's a bad dude, man. They don't just have him, you know, be a bad guy. They, they have him kill some like really friendly looking, like old conductor <laughs> guys. Train. It's like, yeah. Oh my God. And, like hang that guy up. Just These guys are almost retirement. They're they were, they were like, retire. they were going to have to go. They were going to buy this that. This is their last boat. run on the train. And they, I promise you, they had a fishing boat that they just yep. bought together. They were about to yep. go fishing. Um, and he hangs that guy up just just so he can be the the, the whistleblower. Like, mm-hmm. so his like swing is like it's pretty good villain stuff. He's a pretty bad dude. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. brutal. Um, so he he speeds up the train. So Ethan's like the calculations for Ethan to get on the train are out. So he's gonna have to jump off a mountain. <laughs> and this is where it's like, okay. And my friend again, my friend who saw that first screening said this, and I agreed with him. They took, it took too long to get there. They kept cutting to him, like driving down a trail and back to action. Mm -hmm. Then him driving. And it was like, we know the problem is we know what's going to happen already. Mm -hmm. So if you take too long to get there, it's kind of annoying instead of exciting. Right. So if they had kept this whole thing from us, this motorcycle thing from us, then we'd be like, wait, what's, what's going to end up happening? And I would have been thinking about Steve McQueen style jumping the motorcycle onto the top of the train or something, you know, like mm-hmm. we do get a little Steve McQueen moment where Ethan jumps it over the fence, like mm-hmm. definitely great escape style. I would have been thinking about, wait, what's he going to do? What's the crazy thing going to be? And then when they got to the top of the mountain, I would have been like, oh shit. Well, I know they're going to the top of the mountain. So I felt like they kind of failed setting that up to be anything exciting by showing it to us so many times before. And that's mm-hmm. why I was surprised they didn't do it at the beginning of the movie and get got it out of the way. Nevertheless, it was fun. And how it culminated, I kind of, did you guess how it was going to culminate with him, how he was going to enter the train? Because I kind of did, but I said to myself, there's no way they're going to do that. Oh, that he was going to crash in, you mean? Crash in and actually interfere with action. I really right. was thinking like, you know, it would make sense if he just came into the train <laughs> 
But they wouldn't do that well. I, the way they're surprising me in this movie is by going a little bit zany. <laughs> like, uh, that, that well, is crazy. Well, I think that that's, there's multiple points in this movie where um, Ethan comes kind of flying in out of nowhere in a sequence where we, we're not with him, where we're actually away from him. And so he becomes right. this this thing oh, that gets dropped yeah. into the movie. So that's a little different for how you the, handle him. The really great one earlier, which... Mm, so when I saw it the first time, they had this a new featurette before the movie that was about the Rome chase. And it fucking spoiled that motorcycle thing. Oh, that's terrible. That stinks. That, that really I didn't stinks. I have that happen. Yeah, that's. I don't mind getting those featurettes when I go see another movie. I kind of don't want you to show me the featurette right before the movie. That's like playing. That's like playing a recording of the band's last album before they come out to perform. Yeah. That's just so stupid. It, it sucked. So when when she's trapped in the car and everybody's around, and you, we know that Ethan's on that motorcycle, but we haven't seen him for a minute, and then the motorcycle comes in like doing a wheelie and just takes out those guys. I mean, yeah. that got a big lift out of the crowd the night we saw it. Yeah. But the night I saw it, the first time everybody had already seen it. Oh, that's stupid. And I was just like, God damn it. But it's still good. It's good. Yeah. Like the way he enters that and like that whole sequence, uh, how that breaks down into the gunfight and the, and the chase is great. So they so there's put that, that one. before there's the, the fan screening. When you went to this fan screening in the IMAX, yeah. they must have thought that they're, they can... They must have hey, it's the another way we're going to show you. that shit. Yeah, we, we've seen the the we've seen the mountain jump. We've seen the um, train. Yeah, because we saw we all saw the train part before Indiana Jones. Yeah, and then the third featurette about the car chase was one too many. Yeah, and um, doing it before the screen. I don't want to see those yeah, before I see the movie. No, but no, anyway, no. Um, what's the third one though? You said there's a remember. third one, maybe. That, I don't remember, but I think there were. Hmm. I think there was one other one somewhere where he comes out of nowhere in a moment where you didn't expect it. I don't remember mm. it though. I just felt like by the time it happened uh, on the train, I felt like it was a pattern. So my guess would be there must be another one somewhere. Just a little rule of threes business. Maybe there. it was during the sandstorm or something, or I don't know. I don't know either, but he, um, it plays as a comedy beat after it's over. Mm. Like you get this big, like boom and everybody in the theater goes, what the, and then he's all shaken by it. In classic Ethan Hunt, we've talked about this a little. Ethan Hunt doesn't just stand up and dust off his tux the way J- James Bond does. He actually gets hurt and stuff. He actually gets thrown right. and a little dazed. So he's like, wait. And then he looks up and sees, he's like, Grace? He's like right in front of him. And um, it works really well. But again, like I was saying, it surprised me because I didn't think they would go there. I was like, they're not going to go there. And then they did. And that was where the surprise came. And I think you like, do have to kind of do that this far down the line in a series, you know? Yeah. And I think also given what happens, you know, when the train goes off the cliff and you have this almost Buster Keaton like series of gags from one car to the next, to the next, to the next, if I feel like they're telegraphing foreshadowing to the audience that, there is a degree of Keaton-esque, mm. like you said, zaniness going on. Because that train shit is unbelievable. Um, yeah. But it's, and it is totally that kind of Keaton engineering wonder, you know, where you're just kind of, wow, they've got some kind of setup where they got everybody actually hanging upside down and they're really suspending them and, you know, all that shit. So, I mean, it's like, I was, as outrageous as it was, I was kind of, 
more satisfied with it than I was in Fallout with the helicopters crashing and rolling and spinning and going over the edge and hanging off the thing. Something yeah. about this was really calculated and kind of delicious. Whereas I yeah. don't know that delicious would be how I would describe what happens at the end of Fallout. No, we we both kind of concluded that in Fallout it's maybe goes on a little long. Where here, because it's a little silly, it's like helicopter rolls, helicopter slides off a cliff, helicopter goes down a little crevasse. It's like okay, this isn't really. There's not much escalation happening here, really. Um, mm-hmm. At least, especially not visually. And then he, here it's like train goes over, train car goes down, and then you have this like sometimes the physics of it. Um, will be you, you can buy the physics more and that'll make it more effective like mm-hmm. where the tra- the helicopter stuff is kind of like i'm not even sure it would work that way where this is like gravity is pulling the train right, and the way the right. train is connected is going to do this and you can feel each step of it as each car kind of goes over and they got to get to the next one and i as a person that's worked in the restaurant business for a long time i really appreciated the details of the kitchen like the galley car having the like the fryer grease coming out and then the dishwasher, but they could close the dishwasher lid and can use the handle to pull themselves up and all this stuff that was real authentic to me to the kitchen. It's clear they went into a kitchen and said, okay, what could be the, you know, what could be the different like beats of the action in the galley car or whatever. And I thought all that stuff was fantastic and real nail bitey. And just once they get to the piano car, whatever that was, that piano thing with the stretching of the, you know, brass, hook that's holding the train or the piano down to the floor that was all really good and you could tell that there was some kind of real suspension going on you could just kind of tell by the way Cruz jumps over to that other side uh i don't think they actually asked Haley Atwell to do that but i think Cruz really did do that and i don't know i thought it was really suspenseful and very well done yeah and then having paris show up so we didn't talk about the you know carrie always shows up it turns out he's the bad guy so again kind of Kind of tapping back to the De Palma one, right? Like, oh, it turns out the right. big—he's the big bad guy. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really good that you know Gabriel gets any information he needs from that guy, and then it's like, is that what you know? And you're the only one that knows it, and he thinks that's what's protecting him. Oh, I'm the only one that knows it, and he doesn't know that Gabriel's job is to protect the thing from anyone knowing it. Therefore. Mm-hmm cuts his throat kills him that was a nice move but then also he knows maybe because because he knows or because the entity told him the likelihood of it i guess because that's how his like basically he's just a the entity is his brain right at this point the entity is telling him what to do do and why all the time he knows that paris was saved by tom by ethan hunt therefore she'll probably betray him and also he doesn't want her to she's the only other one that heard what the guy said so he needs to kill her too well, the, so she gets left for dead, but then she shows up in classic, I'm not quite dead fashion, and saves Tom Cruise, <laughs> just as the as right. Gabriel said she would. And she's left alive, which I actually totally forgot. Um, after the first time I watched it, I had it in my head that she was dead. And then watching it the second time, I remember they make sure to do a little ADR line. I have a pulse here, because they want to bring her back, because she's great. I, yeah. I want her to come back too. I have no yeah. idea. She's a wild card. I have no idea what she's going to be in the next one because she's clearly being arrested by the CIA guys. While Maybe they'll give her the Gr- choice. That's what I'm wondering. So Grace gets the choice, but Grace has for the most part been a good guy. You know, she's, an, she's, she's not a good guy per se, but she's not a murderous, crazy person right. like Paris is. 
But but is she going to get the choice? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, and she could be a real wild card for the next one because she could flip back. For all we know, I have yeah. no idea. But all this is uh, all this is set up pretty well. So, but she's able to tell Ethan about the submarine. Um, so which he is has hilarious that because for... we're so far ahead of Ethan, and we get to the yeah. end of the movie, and like they say the name of the submarine, you know, and Ethan's like, "What? What is that? What is that?" The, and everybody the in the city? audience is like, no, he, "Oh my thinks... god, we've been watching this for two, three hours, and we're so far ahead." Which is another turn, you know. That's new. That's Ooh. fresh. That's different. You know. That's See, that makes one. me want to go back and watch the debriefing scene at the beginning. Did he come into the room too late to hear about the submarine? Because they were talking about the submarine and the debriefing, the big exposition dump at the beginning, but he was still coming into the building as the other guy. Maybe. Yeah. Did they calculate that so that he would come in too late to know about the submarine so he wouldn't know the whole movie and then learn later? That's you mean they being the writers? Yes. Or yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's interesting. So now he has that vital bit of information. So we know what the objective is. The objective is to get to that submarine. Yeah. But it's. But only the one person had that information, right? The coordinates. And he doesn't say what the coordinates are or anything like that. So Paris wouldn't know that. She just knows about the submarine to tell Ethan. So now, we're obviously, we're going to have an underwater adventure to get to the submarine. God knows what the entity is going to throw at them to stop them from getting to the submarine. That's going to be interesting. Um, but how are they going to find it is going to be the big, big goal. It'll be fun. It's going to be a blast. I have no idea what else they're going to throw at us in this next movie. But um, my thinking, though, is that while this one was most the most belabored by exposition, like we said earlier, is that part of that was because it, this movie took that weight for the next movie. I'm thinking the next movie is probably going to be a lot leaner than this movie was. I don't know. It might be as long as this movie. There might be a lot of set pieces and a lot of stuff they're going to try to get wrapped up character right. by character. That'll make it just as long, but they shouldn't have to give as much setup at all. Like all the but rules the are in place, right? the entity will still be the villain, right? Yeah, but we know everything about yeah. the entity at this point, right. so we don't need to sit down and right. talk about it. Carrie Elwes is dead. All those other people are unimportant. Kittredge will probably play into this somewhat, but um, it'll be interesting to see. I think Kittredge will probably be more of an antagonist even in this next one, is my guess. But... Um, I don't know. I'm Maybe looking Vanessa forward to Redgrave it. Vanessa Redgrave will be back. Can she be back? Can she be? Can she be? She didn't die she in the. Be. She didn't die in the in Mission Impossible One, right? Well, I'm just like, uh, I, this is where I'm like, she's not dead, right? Vanessa Redgrave's still alive. She's still alive. Yeah, I think. So. But but yeah, dude, I can't keep track of everybody anymore. I don't know who's know. alive or dead. I know. At this no, point. it's that's because one of the a, isn't one of her sisters died though, right? Um, yeah, Lynn, I think, Lynn, Lynn died. Lynn Redgrave Lynn died. died. But wasn't there? And then there Glenda Jackson. Sisters? We lost Glenda oh. Jackson. Just recently. just recently. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah. I don't know why I was thinking there was another Redgrave that. Um, well, her never mind. Her daughter, right? Who was married to Liam Neeson, died. Oh, that's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that was in the skiing accident. Yeah. Sorry, bringing everybody down. With all these, with all these <laughs> well, Vanessa Redgrave, British actors, and but Vanessa Redgrave's still alive. That's right, um, and can be. God, I'm I, I'm a hundred percent convinced now that she is coming back, and she will be her mother. 
I don't see how they cannot do that. It sounds, mm-hmm. man. I did. I hadn't given that any thought, but now I'm 100% convinced that that's okay. Well, um, that she's the mom. Let's do our li- listeners poll or get feedback from people who listen to this theory to let us know whether we're crazy or whether it's a you think that we're onto something. Yeah, somebody might know a detail that we don't know that yeah. negates the possibility, but I don't think so. We just watched all these movies, um, and it does seem as though she was left. Her big choice would be to make a deal. She's not going to go to prison. That Max right. character ain't going to prison. Yeah. She's got to have her champagne. She's got to have her fun. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's all right. about all I have, I think. Yeah, me too. If, if um, there's anything else to say, we'll say it over on Patreon. Um, again, at alienminute.com forward slash Patreon, or actually the other way around. Patreon.com forward slash alienminute. Um yeah, if anything occurs to us to talk about this movie that we missed on this episode, we'll talk about it over there. Or if you haven't heard our other conversation about all the other Mission Impossible movies, come over there and listen to them. Uh, they're fun. And we'll have other things to talk about, too. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye.